Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week, we are looking at the theme of war in Harry Potter. So to start our conversation out, we're going to start with a quote. And this quote comes from the Order of the Phoenix. And it is the last part of the Sorting Hats song that in this year kind of comes in the form of a warning. But this year I'll go further, listen closely to my song. Though condemned I am to split you, still I worry that it's wrong. Though I must fulfill my duty, and must quarter every year, still I wonder whether sorting may not bring the end I fear. Oh no, the perils, read the signs, the warning history shows. For our Hogwarts is in danger from external deadly foes. And we must unite inside her, or we'll crumble from within. I have told you, I have warned you. Let the sorting now begin. Yeah, so interesting Sorting Hat song. Kind of sad if we're thinking about the Sorting Hat as a sentient being that it is forced to, or they are forced to do something that they think is problematic. Yeah, that it's defined, in fact, by something that is divisive. Mm -hmm. That the sorting itself is a way of dividing students up, which, especially at a time of war, of external threats, is problematic. Or to lead up to war, Mm -hmm. right? It would be an interesting... We have no idea how the Sorting Hat makes the decisions for sorting people. How interesting would it be if, because it doesn't believe in the process, it just, like, does whatever it wants and puts people in, like, quote-unquote wrong houses, Mm. but because of the people that they're surrounded by and because of their own identity in that house, they start embodying some of those attributes. Not that I I think that necessarily happened, but it could. We don't know. Nature versus nurture, right? Mm -hmm. Are, Are these people naturally a part of a certain house or having certain ideals, or is that something that gets built in them because they're told that this is something that's good about them or something that is remarkable about them? Mm -hmm. And as we've talked about in the past, we would sort people all over the place in different houses than they're necessarily placed in. So maybe that's what this is. Yeah. Yeah. It should be the randomizing hat. Yeah, basically. But... Yeah, I I think it's an interesting quote as kind of the setting the stage for talking about war in Harry Potter, because how we see war in Harry Potter, it's put across these different lines, mainly Slytherins, the villains, Mm -hmm. the perpetrators of war, attacks, bigoted hate crimes, things like that, which, yes, some of them are doing, absolutely, but... Yeah, you're you're sorting kids into a house, and if they learn at all about the history of the houses, then they know that this is the narrative that they're placed in. As 11-year-old children, exactly. that is powerful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. How, how differently would it have been, or would it not have been very different if, there were no Hogwarts houses. Yeah, the, the first real conversation Harry has about the way Hogwarts is set up is about the houses and is about creating divisions between people, mm-hmm. is in a way that others, of, you know, people based off of where they're placed. 
and it already starts to create divisions. Him and Draco, clearly. Well, yeah. Draco's like, if I was starting the Hufflepuff, I would just leave. Yeah. And then you have Hagrid being like, there wasn't a witch or wizard that ever went bad that wasn't in Slytherin. Exactly. obviously is wrong. Totally. But, yeah, you have these stereotypes and you have these rivalries and hatreds and everything that is just not helpful if you want people to have understanding for each other if you want people to interact with people who are different than them so you're not othering people through the structure of the whole institution absolutely yeah i I cannot imagine that that wouldn't have a role to play in the war and people supporting people who were in their house even if they're doing wrong things and and vice versa Yeah. yeah i mean the fact that the entire slytherin house refuses to fight alongside Hogwarts in the Battle of Hogwarts is... I mean, most of everyone was sent away, the kids, and it's only 17-year-old. Seventh years, you know, of the other three houses stay, and Mm -hmm. Slytherins don't, at least from what we see. Mm -hmm. And if we're to take that seriously, it means that there is something wrong with the sorting system, because I don't feel comfortable saying that these people are just naturally bad or naturally unwilling to do this mm-hmm. and that it doesn't have anything to do with this system that they've been a part of for the last seven years. Yeah, definitely. Well, why don't we head into our analysis? What character did you bring? Yeah, so I wanted to talk about Dumbledore today. He's interesting when it comes to war in, in several different regards. I think one is just that he kind of headed up this non-government sanctioned resistant fighters Mm. organization as what is basically a a school principal which is just a very odd combo doesn't mean that you you can't do it but it's interesting um if these are the two major ways that you are interacting with society how do those bleed over into one another mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i also think it's interesting because We see him being kind of a strategist in a lot of how things unfold in terms of the war. So, for example, sending Hagrid and Maxime to try to get contact with the giants and get them on their side. Lupin being sent to the werewolves and things like that. He's the person thinking up these different strategies of what to do to start gaining allies, especially allies that he thinks Voldemort will try to, mm. to secure. But the strange thing to me is that like what he actually has most control over is Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. And he didn't use that space for those who were growing up there to learn about muggles and different magical peoples in the the magical world and you know for those who already grew up in the magical world to unlearn problematic things that they learned there um in this pure blood wizard supremacist society that they've been raised in so it's just like, why wouldn't you start there? Because I, I don't know exactly how long that he was headmaster of Hogwarts, but it seems like probably at least 30 years, maybe 40. He wasn't at the time Voldemort was there, 
but probably soon after that, yeah. I could imagine. He was at least a faculty member at that point, mm-hmm. and one in high esteem. Yeah, exactly. And so, of course, we don't really know how much power the Board of Governors has and right. the ministry, how much they have over curriculum or what classes are approved and things like that. So... It doesn't seem like no. much if, you know, Ferenz is able to come in and teach a completely different version of div- it's divination. A, it's still divination class, though. So, you know, was there some huge fight to have muggle studies taught there to mm. begin with as an elective class? What would the fight look like to make it a mandatory class? Which I think absolutely should have been done. Absolutely. At the very least, after... Voldemort was defeated the first time, <laughs> you know, th- there was 11 years that you have to help all of the young people, young magical people in the UK to learn more about muggles, to unlearn problematic ideas, to hopefully be less bigoted. You have all of these students, all of those 11 years that could have benefited from that. And maybe you could have seen differences in policies by the Ministry of Magic and things like that. And so I think that it's just, you know, he's, he's a highly influential person in the magical world. And he should have done more for that. And if he wasn't going to use education as something to combat some of the societal things that are going on that is leading to these wars then why did he want to be headmaster and not minister for magic Hmm. because it seems like he could have done more there if education isn't one of the fronts that he wants to kind of fight in this war on bigotry absolutely yeah that's that's really really compelling because it reminds me of the fight in our society for anti-racist education mm-hmm. for education we're looking at you florida yeah but not just florida i mean everywhere yeah um i think i i just saw a headline the other day that texas put forward a bill that would make it so that would remove the requirement that calls any mention of the kkk in american history textbooks immoral because that requirement is just going too far it's apparently too far how can we say this racist terrorist organization is immoral? Yeah, I know, that right? Just, it doesn't make any sense. Absurd. But, you, you know, you remind me of, on the other hand, California just passed a requirement that anyone going through the California State University system has to take a ethnic studies class as one of their requirements. Oh, good. Um, and that has been after a very long fight for mm-hmm. ethnic studies. And there's still lots of places that are continuing that fight. The reason that activists and communities are fighting for that is because it has proven effects in not only helping to hopefully reduce bigotry, but also helping those who are members of these communities to be more successful in a system that is not built for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about Hogwarts, that prism, yeah, it's completely not on Dumbledore's radar at all from what we see in the books. Yeah, it's just absent versus if he had been Minister for Magic instead of Fudge, that would have been a lot better. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and so, you know, he actually had relationships with the Mer people, the centaurs, mm-hmm. things that would have been really helpful in hopefully secure better equality in the entire magical world. 
but he stayed at Hogwarts and, and that's, yeah, it's, it's a question I have of, of why. It almost makes me feel after your conversation that maybe it is less that his role as an educator kind of blends into the other things that he does and more that his role as a general or as someone who's preparing for these wars leads into his education and his role at Hogwarts is just to keep it safe that he is there as a protector of what exists and as making a safe place for these children to learn mm. rather than ensuring that the learning itself is at the highest level it should be at. Mm. Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, he had been there for so long. Mm -hmm. He had at least been teaching or a headmaster for 50 years. I don't know, maybe he kind of like Harry and Voldemort saw it as his home in a certain sort of way since his parents were dead his sister was dead and his brother he lost a relationship with yeah i don't know but i also think with dumbledore he's also interesting because he is so old and he had been through this really ugly war 50 years before the books even start that absolutely would have impacted how he interacted with Voldemort's first and second rise. Yeah. So something that I was kind of seeing with that is that he, he certainly didn't trust people. He told no one everything. And I don't know if that's, you know, giving partial information to certain parties, even though they are willing to die for the cause. Like they don't even know sometimes what they're doing or why they're doing it. But I don't know if that was like because he has trust issues that are carrying over from his relationship with Grindelwald or if it's just smart tactics in a world that mm -hmm. has veritaserum and, and legitimacy. But it also kind of shades his relationship with Harry as well because Harry trusts him but Dumbledore doesn't tell him so much and so it leaves me with some questions about how genuine were his interactions with Harry and were they genuine at first and then they turned strategic after the Tom Riddle's diary was there and he started looking into that or you know were they always some form of like disturbing strategic grooming in yeah. a sense so yes I in regard to war and Dumbledore I have a lot of questions yeah, there's just, there's a lot there and it's very convoluted and there's a lot of missed opportunities. I think sometimes like I can justify and not in a moral sense of certain actions that he took and in regard to the war and even in regard to Harry, not morally, but logically, strategically, yeah. exactly. But what do they mean morally in times of war? Yeah. Oh, so you got missed opportunities and compelling questions. <laughs> Already, you're, you're done, basically. Yeah, basically, that's the end of our conversation. We don't need to hear from Chris today. But if we have to, I suppose you should tell us what your plot point is. Oh, if I've got to. Yeah, if you gotta. I wanted to talk about book six. The way I've always seen book six and the reason why it's always been one of my favorite books. Mm. Because... All the teenage romantic troubles? Yes, that end. Like, <laughs> that is true. I'm I'm a sucker for teenage rom-com nonsense. Like, sure. 
But I think that the book does it in a really interesting way because the war is no longer a secret war behind the scenes where there's the ministry trying to pretend everything's normal mm -hmm. as the Death Eaters are building power and the Order of the Phoenix is trying to stop them, as it was in Book 5. But in Book 6, everyone knows this is happening. The war is on, and yet school continues and life mm -hmm. continues. And so for me, the rom communist all that, that element, it's kind of like thinking about what it's like to live on the home front during a war how you can be affected by war and you can be in a society that is wholly affected by war and yet be separate from it and safe from it in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a really interesting way to build the narrative and to have an entire book really in that mode before you get into the final book in which Harry has the responsibility to end the war. Book six ends with Dumbledore dying and ultimately that really shattering any hope Harry has of living normally or of continuing as a student or of being able to not be an active participant in this war. Yeah, the, you saying that now makes me think, is Dumbledore's death kind of like a draft notice coming in? Before that, the war is going on, you're stressed about it, it's affecting people, you keep hearing news coming in, but you don't feel responsible to do everything because you have other people who are doing that. And yeah. then suddenly, now something's required of you that you didn't sign up for, that you didn't choose, that you're not responsible for because you're a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing I think that the series does really well because it takes this kind of trope of orphaning a child to make it so they no longer had anyone to lean on to get the things done. No one can come in and save them. And that happens in so many stories. Mm -hmm. And Harry starts off orphaned. He loses Sirius in book five and he loses Dumbledore in book six. This is two kind of parental figures that he can rely on. And by book seven, it is up to him. So it does kind of reproduce that trope, but I love how in book six, there's also the conversation of Harry coming to the realization that he couldn't, for his own sake, sit on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. That he is choosing to be Voldemort's antagonist in the same way that Voldemort chose him and marked him. It also made it so that he now is motivated that he could not sit on the sidelines. And so... Yes, there's an element where it's kind of a draft notice, where it's like, now that you've got no one else to do the work, but there's also that element of him being the one who chooses to do it as well. Yeah, I mean, he has a saving people thing. Yes, absolutely. He would basically feel too guilty to do anything else. But up until that point, when Dumbledore was there, he was more okay being a student, living his life, having his own... Hogwarts drama going yeah. on. Well, and... at the same time, gathering information. Oh, absolutely. Which I also appreciate, where mm -hmm. he, he has the space where he can become educated, not only about how to defend himself, perhaps, but also learning information he can use to defend himself and to eventually defeat his opponent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, that really came to mind was how, when they opened the Daily Prophet, Ron kind of jokingly is like, anyone we know die. That, I think, is really emblematic of, okay, we're joking about this because we want to keep it lighthearted. But at the same time, 
we know that this is a possibility mm-hmm. and this is normalized in a certain way. It means that even if you are safe from harm yourself, you are not on the front lines, that doesn't mean that you are safe from the repercussions of war. Yeah. Susan Bones, mm-hmm. her aunt, was killed. So even if it's not someone directly in your family, it's someone that you know a couple degrees away. Certain students are withdrawn from Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there are these other elements at play there, too. And it does come ultimately to Hogwarts when Draco's trying to kill Dumbledore and that leads to other people getting hurt and then ultimately to the Death Eaters getting into Hogwarts. The breaching of the safe space of Hogwarts. Yeah, from that point on, everything changed. Mm -hmm. So yeah, when I was thinking about war and I was thinking about what it's like to live through war, it's an experience that is not as often highlighted of, yeah, what it's like to live through war when you're not on the front lines. Yeah, very interesting. But we should move into our compelling questions. So my question for you is where do you see parallels as well as dissimilarities between magical wars and wars in our reality? Oh, this is an excellent question. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I think one of the elements that I see here is how it's called a war, but it's so difficult to define in regards to who the people who are fighting this war are. A a typical international war is going to be between different nation states, or there might be a civil war between different groups within a nation state. This isn't really either of those. I think the other thing that comes up is, is what could be argued in the American War on Terror. We claim that we're at war, but we are at war with organizations that don't have governments. They don't have, you know, they are non-state actors, and that has to change your tactics in certain ways. And so I think there's elements, there's, you know, this is kind of a mix of those final two, of being part civil war, because yes, that, you know, this is happening within a society. Clearly there's, you know, beyond just the Death Eaters, there's enough people to keep the ministry going and to show up to the Battle of Hogwarts to fight for the the Death Eaters, that this is a sizable population beyond just the terrorists themselves. But at the same time, yeah, they're fighting against a an organization, a uh, an organization that doesn't have a kind of formal governance structure. So that's definitely one of the things that comes to my mind is just just formulaically how to define this war that they're they're talking about. Another thing I think of though is uh that, that doesn't really mesh as well is how access to resources is such a crucial component to wars mm-hmm. where wars are not just fought and battles are not won and lost just based off of who lost the most people. Mm-hmm. Um, look at look at the invasion of Russia in World War II, where the Russians lost like 25 million people yeah. in that. But they also were ultimately more effective because they were able to cut off the invading Nazi army from resources. They did slash and burn. They lived out the winter in Russia. So ultimately, the German army retreated and the Soviets were able to enter Germany in a rebuttal push. And so there, if you're just looking at numbers of dead, the Russians lost. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at 
who has access to resources, what those resources allow them to do in a war, what strategies you're going to use to mitigate your opponent's access to resources and build your own. Like those kinds of strategies are so important, you know, beyond the tactics of a single battle. And we don't see that happening the same way in this kind of war because... They're all just using magic. They're all just using magic, exactly. Mm -hmm. Their skills are pretty much equal-ish. I mean, you have Voldemort. Mm Mm-hmm. Then you had Dumbledore, you know, and so exactly, yeah, uh, yeah. There's, it's not like the Death Eaters who are only twenty five people or so that they are the twenty five most powerful people mm-hmm. outside of Voldemort. They probably have a lot of monetary resources, but we True. don't see how that plays into it. At Particularly all. after Malfoy is arrested. So yeah, I think that that this idea of who you know what resources are available to either side and how that's going to affect their ability to succeed is kind of left out of this war Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and magic makes that very difficult to engage with because it's very easy for everyone to do everything you know you don't need to train an army corps of engineers you don't need to build a manufacturing system you don't Mm -hmm. need to have medics you know all these different elements that are important to running a well-oiled military industrial complex Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the interesting thing, too, I think, in in this latest Voldemort war. It wasn't as war-ish as we generally think of war as being, because a lot of it was just, like, infiltrate the ministry to the point where we can do our things, quote-unquote, legitimately. It's a coup, more than anything, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, something I was thinking about, too, was, like, there aren't any weapons of mass destruction. Mm. Everything seems pretty much limited to one spell at a time per person. I mean, obviously, with the exception of magical creatures when, when they enter it. Yeah. But in general, it's very limited destructive capabilities. And you have something like fiend fire, but... If you lit a fire in the room of requirement with just a little bit of gasoline, (laughs) like the same thing would have happened, you know? And so, yeah, I think compared to our wars at this point, you know, for the past 75 years, everything is different than a much more close-up style. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also... With the magical world, it's easier to avoid to some degrees because I think that wizards could probably theoretically just forge documents and leave the country. Not to mention they aren't in open warfare in that this is... Even when it becomes clear that the Death Eaters are back, Voldemort's back, and you know there's the Ministry versus the Death Eaters for most of Book 6, it's still a secret war in that the majority of the population, the Muggles still have no idea this is happening. Mm-hmm. But I I do see that kind of as a parallel to some degree with our worlds because these international wars, especially that the United States has been involved in in the past 20 plus years, certain parties of the United States are involved directly and it's all happening somewhere else and you just you know hear little reports of casualties and things like that and if I, you hear those if, if you even hear that yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like oh there was a report this 
person in Yemen was killed by a U.S. drone. Like, maybe it says that. Maybe most of the time it doesn't, you know? And yeah, that's so even less just, likely to be reported. Yeah. And so it's like all of these different things are happening, but nobody really knows. Like, I'm sure there was tons of muggles that were killed, negatively yeah. affected. I mean, we know that there was attack on that bridge and stuff, but like... For the most part, they're not the focus of it. You don't know the aftermath of it. You don't know the magnitude of it because they're not important. And I think that's very much how things are for people living in the United States and how they don't really think about the wars that are being waged and the deaths that are being waged by our tax dollars. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. On a happy note, should we... <laughs> Move to your compelling question for me. Sure. My question is, if this is a war, who are the soldiers fighting in this war? And what does that say about the society? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because so much of it feels a lot more like terrorism in terms of what the Death Eaters are doing. Mm -hmm. It's these random attacks on muggle-borns or people who are friendly with muggles or obviously muggles themselves but nothing formal mm -hmm. there's no declaration of war we don't really know of recruitment for these armies i mean you know that there were people who were Death Eaters before, and then you know that there are now more Death Eaters. Somehow, oh. Crab and Goyle got involved. Malfoy, obviously. Then there's the Snatchers, you know, so there's other people who are getting involved, and there are alliances that are being formed with the werewolves, with the giants, and, and yeah. so on. The other side is more of the question mm -hmm. because you have the order of the phoenix which is hardly anyone that seems about it you have to imagine the ministry is involved but what are they doing and who's doing it yeah i mean the ministry puts out these notices of here are steps to take to try to keep your family safe and things like that but it feels more like a domestic terror situation than mm -hmm. it does a war situation. Obviously, there is a coup. I mean, let's talk about coups and domestic <laughs> terrorism because that happened real recently with our country. So, yeah, I, I think it's... I think there's, there's more just instances of killing. There's a coup and then there's a big battle rather than, like full-fledged war. Yeah, and, and I think that battle is really interesting because it's not like we see the Ministry show up, even the Ministry under Voldemort's control. Like, it, it's so clearly Voldemort who's in charge, and yet he has an army, both of humans and of magical creatures, and he doesn't hide behind or, 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 or play up like, this is the Ministry of Magic, demanding that felon, undesirable number one, you know, whatever <laughs> Harry Potter comes out. It's literally just like, we're going to attack. I'm Voldemort, <laughs> hand him over, exactly. and then you can live. Yeah. Which I find very, very interesting. Well, he didn't instate himself as Minister for Magic. Right. He had a puppet, but he exactly. could have had that puppet come out and, and mm -hmm. speak on this behalf and, and say this. But yeah, he, he doesn't do that. 
I think that's interesting. And I think that the use of magical creatures is interesting too, because ultimately... He doesn't care about their casualties. Exactly. Mm-hmm. He is using them as cannon fodder, as as people to do battle, but not, you know, for whatever promises he gave them. But Exactly, because they were treated so badly. Yeah. It's like, okay, I guess I'll do this. And yeah, I think that says a lot about what society was like as well, where if someone can come in and gather this many allies... What were the weaknesses in society beforehand that allowed them to do so? Again, I don't think it's it's appropriate to just assume that all giants or all werewolves are just cool being evil. Clearly, things like Dementors, that does start to kind of get in that way. There, there is a kind of natural predilection. So yeah, I, I think that that's, that's interesting because it says a lot about how they're used in battle, but also about why they're able to be recruited for battle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, should we move into our missed opportunities? Sure. So mine is that I'm coming from this from the United States context, and so it's really hard for me to think about war without thinking about, you know, white supremacist imperialist hegemony in the world, <laughs> because that is what the United States does in the world, and how they have done that, particularly in Asia, and continue to do that. And these books are taking place in the United Kingdom, which, you know, they've done a lot of that themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my missed opportunity is just some questions about, like, how would the Muggle world, or even other parts of the magical world, like among goblins after the massacres at, at Gringotts and, and things like that, like, how would they have been irrevocably damaged and changed? Because that's what the United States leaves in its wake whenever it's militarily involved in other countries. Yeah. You know, it's, it's more than just, like, the lives lost, but, like, with infrastructure, with, with systems of oppression, with surveillance, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, I guess... That's my missed opportunity that I think there already should have been effects from the 10 years prior to when Harry gets to Hogwarts. Where are those lasting effects from that previous war? Because it seemed like that one was actually more lengthy and possibly more warlike at the time than this newer one is. And so, yeah, the United States have just reached havoc on the rest of the world mm -hmm. and destroyed economies medical systems you know so much that have just hindered different countries being able to get out of poverty or out of reliance on the you know economic globalized imperialism and so yeah i just i want to see that somewhere in there as well totally yeah, my, my missed opportunity is also a structural critique of uh, <laughs> of how this plays out because we don't see anyone making any money off of this war. 
And that just is not the case with modern war. War profiteering war, is a thing. It is absolutely a thing. <laughs> and I guess the Snatchers are the closest thing that we get to that as mm. a kind of mercenary company. But it's true, but they didn't have... It doesn't seem like they had money to begin with. And that's definitely not how war works. Exactly, right? Um, <laughs> the Malfoys should be making a lot of money. Exactly. Somehow. And that's that's what I'm I'm missing, is that there should be people who are pro war not necessarily for any ideological reason or loyalty but just because it helps them it helps them make money we don't see that here and so that really breaks down when you think of this as a metaphor for modern war because it's just not the same as when capitalism is involved and the wizarding world is a capitalist society you know <laughs> yeah. they, their their need for resources is different but the fact that the books are so defined by class shows how important money is to them as well as the ideas of kind of you know status like pure blood and etc but the two of them interact in important ways and frankly wars interact with both of those things in important ways and and i think that as an american the economic aspect and the capitalist aspect is something that I particularly see missing. Uh, I can imagine from someone who's experienced more of the kind of British class system and its ties to status might be also looking for that and, and maybe they find it in a way that I don't. Mm -hmm. But really I think that, that that economic and capitalist kind of perspective is, is really missing from this war. Maybe the Malfoys or, or there's another, the, Blaise Zabini's family made money on the last war. And mm -hmm. they, so they're new wealth and maybe there's like mm -hmm. more conflict between him and the Malfoys and you know, whatever. There's just, yeah. there's room there for real engagement with that, that we don't see. Yeah, absolutely. Which obviously that's not this series, but something that I, I really appreciated Suzanne Collins putting in with the new Hunger Games book with the Plinth family being new wealth that happened just because of war. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Let's move into our takeaways. I think my takeaway is that there isn't really war happening in Harry Potter. It's more domestic unrest and violence based off of bigotry, class, race, and ability. And that comes with a kind of a political overthrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the people who want this rich wizard supremacist social reality aren't happy with the ways that those things are already instituted legally in the magical world they don't think it's extreme enough they want more mm. of it and so they're gonna make it happen yeah it's almost more about how ideologies are weaponized and how they clash in violent ways, particularly with the aggressors on one side. Uh, but all of these other violent policies have been in place this whole time. Yeah. The way people talk about muggles, even the quote-unquote good characters, the way their attitudes come out about some of these things as well. And so it's like this, you know, it's the casual racism, it's the casual ableism that's there. Um, so those ideologies are already there in a maybe slightly more watered down form, but that's not enough for those who have more hate. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. It's making me think about, would the giants see this as a war for independence or mm-hmm. a A war to return rebellion? to their home. Exactly. They were forced to move. Yeah. Would the werewolves see it to a war for gain civil rights. employment? Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think my takeaway is I'm really curious what was going on in wizarding society after the coup. Because mm-hmm. I, I guess we know through some visions that Voldemort was still anxious about Harry and worried about his wand not working and, and wanted the Elder Wand and stuff like that. But outside of Harry, it's not like there was any firm resistance. You know, I'm sure there were pockets of it, but there wasn't a Dumbledore or a Ministry of Magic to oppose him. Yeah. He had the Minister of Magic as his flunky. And so what was life like then? when Voldemort wins, you know, or, or seemingly wins. And he just has some people who happen to still be on the run who could be a nuisance, but structurally and systemically, he's won. What is life like at that point? What is the messaging that's given to society? And yeah, how does that lead to structural changes? Uh, those are kind of the things that I would love to see more of. Totally, yeah. Well, we should wrap up there. Could you bring up what we'll be discussing next week? Next week, we are going to take a nice 180, and we're going to be talking about love in The Hunger Games and The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. So we're going to make love and not war? Oh, don't say any of these <laughs> words. <laughs> well, we're going to end there, folks. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our social media and our website in the episode description. You can also join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines if you want to join our supporters to get access to all sorts of fun extra goodies and also help us keep the show sustainable. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week. Until then... Geek out. out.